Hi, party people. You're listening to a podcast called Big G Sugar. That's the dumbest name I've ever heard. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Big Chief Sugar. Um, I don't actually remember what episode this is. I think it's episode five. I think it's five. Uh, I'm Greg Deal. I'm your host. And uh, next to me is my lovely daughter, Sage. She's, they can't see you make faces, dude. You got to say something. Hello. <laughs> um, and uh, so for this episode, we're actually going to be talking about um, I, the interview that I did with Irene Bedard. Uh, it was about a month or so ago. And um, let me first say that I apologize for how long this has taken. Um, our whole family moved. So uh, you have four uh, siblings. They're all younger than me. Yeah. And um, so it's a family of seven. And we had to move out of the house that we've been in for four years. Um, And, you know, when you settle into a place for that long, it's a bit difficult sometimes to uh, deep clean, pack, and move. Uh, so it's been a long, uh, arduous process and we are, but we are finally in our new house. Um, we are actually sitting in the, uh, deal nine, nine studio space and, uh, they, yeah, it's good. Um, I was actually gone this weekend. I was in LA. Awesome. I actually have two recordings from this weekend. Um, I have a good friend who is in LA named Dalen and, um, we went and did some stuff together, but I was there for specifically for an event. And we actually, we actually did a podcast that explained everything that happened. Everything. So, um, we'll get into that hopefully this week. Um, cause I'm trying to get Sage, uh, the interviews that we do. What well, Okay. Just as a side note. Um, I've changed the formats that we're doing a little bit. So the format is, uh, because we've been hearing some feedback that, uh, everybody wants more Sage. So we are keeping, um, Sage on as a permanent member of Big Chief Sugar. Hooray, hooray. So, <laughs> so, um, when I do interviews, uh, like I did this weekend with, with, uh, my good friend Dalen, um, she has to listen to the interviews and then, uh, we'll play the interview. And then at the end of the episode, we haven't figured out a name for this yet, but it's basically just like a, uh, a recap or a, um, uh, Q&A. no, it's more. It's more like a, uh, a a clarification section of the podcast, where Sage will ask questions uh, for clarification, or ask me to clarify things. Because sometimes, you know, as a native person, when we start talking about indigenous issues, um, sometimes I will make references to things that other people don't don't know about or don't understand. So like if I said something about Alcatraz and she might make me clarify what I mean about that because, uh, some folks don't know about Alcatraz, which is a story for another podcast. It's very interesting. It is super interesting. Uh, so we are going to do a clarification section. We haven't decided what we're going to call it yet. Um, but all of this sort of organizing the podcast in such a way that Sage gets to participate, um, on a bigger level. 
and where we can still do the storytelling and still have interviews and the opportunity to share things that we find interesting and uh, with with everybody else. So um, and and we've also gotten a lot. Uh, we've gotten a few comments, a few ratings on iTunes, which really helps us out in terms of. Um, the opportunity to pull in sponsors and uh, kind of push us up to the top of the rankings. So that, that's a really good thing. Sponsors are fancy. I like the idea of having a podcast that is uh, unapologetically indigenous but can still apply to anybody. Um, so this weekend's shenanigans definitely falls in line with that um, as uh, I got to meet a lot of cool people this weekend. So I, I'm really hoping we can release that this, this week. But for now is the uh, much anticipated uh, interview with Irene Bedard, um, who is, uh, I mean, if I, if I can be perfectly frank, she's sort of indigenous uh, actress royalty. Um, she uh, won a Golden Globe for Cheyenne Woman. She, um, right after that, became the voice of Disney's Pocahontas, which is, um, which is iconic, but also um, kind of a kind of t- a tough ticket of, as we have sort of progressed our language and understanding of stereotype and what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. Um, and I'm really excited that we actually get to talk about that specifically for this interview. Um, but also just looking at um, how difficult it is for indigenous actors and actresses to replay parts um, that are traumatic. And that is something I've never thought of. And I'm really excited for you guys to hear that. So without further ado, I give you Irene Bedard. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so glad to be here. This has been a great uh, time at Indigenous Pop X this weekend. Yeah, so we're in Denver at Indigenous uh, Pop X, which is like an Indigenous Comic-Con. Um, and uh, I think this initial one's very much about uh, community and getting a lot of artists together and connecting people and everything. Um, but I you, think it definitely did so, awesome. don't you? Don't you? Yeah, I totally I mean, I, I'm meeting you. Yeah. You and uh, your amazing daughter. And I'm lucky. We, we did a performance piece. and Yeah, it was, uh, it was amazing. Thank you. Thank it, you. About I, murdered or missing indigenous women. Sage is, uh, she's an incredible 13-year-old, doing 13-year-old things at the moment. Yes. And, uh, but um, she wants to be an artist, and so I, I try to give her as many opportunities as possible. Possible, yeah. Because uh, I didn't have that growing up. I had to figure it out, and as I'm sure you did too. Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, it was uh, um, a great weekend with all the youth too, because mm. over over on, on one whole section was you know young artists and and did you get to see the kids uh, the, from the STEM camp who did the um, the the electronic uh, indigenous drums. Yes. Yeah, yeah I did. That was that great, was really wasn't cool. it? Yeah. Really so I'm really, really excited about the future generation and, and, um, well, future generations. My, my son's 16. So, yeah. you know, I'm excited for, to see all this incredible forward thinking and future thinking happening. You know, when I had a chance to talk to Jean, um, one of the things that I had mentioned is that, um, you know, for those of us that are, you know, kind of 40 plus, um, 
we're part of this generation that has asserted ourselves uh, within our craft, within within our lives. Um, and we're looking at the first generation of young people who are uh, not in boarding schools. And they're not having to deal with the trauma of those things, uh, which means that there's an enormous amount of power. And we've done a lot of the hard work, as have you know our parents and our grandparents, to help them get to where they're at. Um, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that, because it's, it's, it's an incredible responsibility, um, but it's also very moving. Well, I, I think, like, you know, the way I kind of put it is, is how I started out. First off, you know, I just was like, I'm a girl from Alaska. It didn't even occur to me that I, I would be doing film and television. Mm-hmm. I moved after graduating from the University of the Arts in Philly. I moved to New York and out of the American Indian Community House met a whole lot of other indigenous actors and we started a native theater ensemble called Chukalokala. All original works and we were performing around at Joseph Papp Public and and you know, the very first one that uh, we wrote together was called In the Spirit and it was about a group of young activists who didn't had never met but had this secret mission that they had to go and do. Uh, so one came with plastic explosives, but only enough to blow the noses off of Mount Rushmore. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> but it was, a, you know, kind of a breakdown of how, you know, you had the different types of people, individuals, and also different tri- tribal identities and cultures, and why they were there at Pahasapa and what it meant, and, and, um, and almost, you know, having to find a way to be cohesive when, you know, when there was... Uh, you know when you know when when doing something in a in a in a time when um, you know our voices have not been heard for so long and we have gone through our own apocalypse. So when I started out doing my film career, um, I felt like I was first off I had to I couldn't just go and be a, an actor. I had to go and be a teacher and an ambassador and you know you know, fighting those battles for our cultural perspective. So, you know, I had to be doing my research, had to know what, um, what, you know, what I was looking at um, in terms of even just, you know, hair, makeup, uh, clothing, wardrobe, you know, like, no, that's not wrong. Or having somebody say, okay, let's hear some Cheyenne. And I'm like, oh, you know, that's interesting. I, I just spoke, you know, Lakota in the, or I can't remember, Danae or something in the last film that I did. And, uh, and, I don't know. It's kind of like, you know, me asking you, uh, you know, let's hear, let's hear some Hungarian, because yeah. what you're European, yeah. You know, so, uh, you know, I, just a lot of things like that in my career. But then it sort of went into, along with, you know, in, into like for instance into the West, where. Spielberg really took an in-depth look at the deconstruction of our culture so to move on from there and then to be able to do things like Lakota Women's Siege of Wounded Knee where you know we got to take a look at you know the Wounded Knee Massacre and then you know a hundred years later um, you know it still was something that was occurring to the people um, and to be there with a lot of people who were there at the American Indian Movement and 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 Mary Crowdog Bravebird um, herself and was just an incredible experience. But basically, you know, I feel like in a lot of ways, uh, I've my this body, this instrument, this voice, this you know, this uh, experience that I've had, uh, experiences that I've had, kind of going through the the her story of of Native American peoples post-colonialism yeah. um, 
you know, it's been it's, it's been an amazing and interesting road, but I'm really happy to be participating in my next adventures after, you know, Sleeping Lady Films, Waking Giants Productions of producing. I, when my son, you know, my son's 16, so I, I made a mission and vision statement for myself when he was, uh, when he got into high school, and it was healing through the power and art of storytelling. And, um, kind of coming from Louis Melmadrona, uh, his book, the, the Power of, or The Healing the Mind Through the Power of Storytelling. He's a psych- psychiatrist, author, um, does a lot of work with indigenous cultures. He's indigenous, uh, aboriginal, ca- Canadian himself. And, um, and I really just love his concepts because I've really been, had so much interest in figuring out how we can heal these historical traumas and build bridges. Um, you know, uh, worrying and and anxiety and you know what we've gone through and that what that we're still here, um, it still pervade it still pervades in our in our ourselves in in our communities and and it's in you know it gets in our DNA in in so many ways. My mother went through this, the boarding school, so yeah, yeah. I don't know if I answered your question. No, no. I, I mean, it, it does in that, like, I mean, one of the things I, I heard you say is that in the roles that you've played and the things that you've done, you've been part of this sort of resurgence of knowledge of indigenous people, which is to say that, like, okay, you want to shoot a film, but you got to get it right. And so you're not just an actress. You end up having to educate people on, on what's appropriate and what's not appropriate, helping them discern the difference between Cheyenne and Lakota. And... Uh, and this is this is the big you know the big issue that I'm finding in my own work is is that there is no frame of context to people like they don't understand that in the United States there's 573 tribes and there's over 300 different languages and different dialects within those languages and and the nuance and the historical reference that goes to um, you know the, even just the timelines of first contact to you know uh, the the way that the Cherokee and the Choctaw you know and and those folks were interacting with colonial to westward expansion, to, you know, to uh, the uh, Plains Indian Wars, to all these places, and, and those things are omitted from history, and therefore give a value to those things, which is to say no value. Mm-hmm. So your average American doesn't know any of those things. Mm-hmm. So even a director with good intentions comes along, and you have to school them on what's appropriate and what's not appropriate, and it never dawned on me um, how how significant that would be as far as the task, but also that you would be one of those actors or actresses that was a part of that. And I imagine that's got to be hard, too, to... to because you, it's almost like you have to relive historical trauma, the stuff that's in our DNA, to help somebody understand something which is both important but also uh, heavy. Yeah, I mean, and, and that it, it's even... It's... it's, it's like I'm on HBO's Westworld now, and uh, or you know for season two, and um, uh, it's the storyline, the story, the the core of the story, and even I think for Wichapi, um, but for uh, the you know the entirety of the ser- series is why does viol- why is violence and sexual violence our entertainment? And then also, what is consciousness? And because this uh, faction of, you know, this robot tribe, 
had was was imbued with a different language and a diff, and a different way of viewing the universe in a way they left you know and 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 went away and i believe became the first people to the first ones to be awakened so you know uh for me going back it's it's been um as a, as a native woman, I mean, I literally was hung from a tree all day long on two different sets, on two sides of the continent, actually. One was, uh, we were uh, filming east, east, southeast coast, and the other one was in Los Angeles. One was True Women, which is based on a true story, um, a woman who had married a slave, and she wouldn't leave her husband when the Trail of Tears happened, and um, and then then I, you know, finished that shoot, got on a plane the next morning, went to the next set, and my very which was a, um, you know, a modern, you know, I played a BIA official uh, who come who comes and um, tries to deal with some of the murdering, yeah. um, and who then herself gets hung from a tree so my very first scene of the day uh was to get hung from a tree in a different century and it you know and i've as a native woman have been you know portrayed rape portrayed you know had to portray the rape and had to portray been you know died in so many different ways i definitely passed death 101 that's for sure but um yes it, it you know sand creek massacre for instance when we were filming in into the west and having, I mean, it was so, we couldn't even film, it would be Caligula, you know, violence and, and the things that were done to the women and children uh, were horrific. Um, so we had, you know, we, we had two sets of cavalry coming from either side, it was a total reenactment. And um, I just couldn't stop crying in between takes. I just had to go and, and you know, pet the horse that, that was also having to die over and over again. So, yeah, yeah. I actually talked about that recently because um, the city of Denver really has only recognized Sand Creek in the last five years. Mm-hmm. And um, and the history of it is, is just, it's really horrific. Um, I mean, even when you go, drive down to Sand Creek, the town right outside of Sand Creek is called Chivington, which is the name of the colonel that, that did everything. Yeah, right. And that they would name a town like literally right outside of the historical site. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard stuff. So um, uh, I know you need to go. Um, I did want to, you know, sort of in, in the spirit of uh, Native women and looking at uh, violence and the things that you've had to um, traverse throughout your career, um, I wanted to talk about Disney Pocahontas Mm -hmm. um, because it is both uh, significant in representation Mm -hmm. and as we've come to learn and understand and have more language to define um, you know the the violence that both exists in popular culture and uh, historically um, that Disney's Pocahontas has also come to mean something else Mm -hmm. Uh, but Disney's also not in the habit of relinquishing their princesses and so um, that representation is still there and I think is still important in that way but I'm curious about how over the you know last 20 years how you've um, uh, managed to 
think about this, how you've managed to uh, kind of internalize it and work with it. Um, and then, of course, you came back for uh, Wreck-It Ralph 2, uh, for Ralph Breaks the Internet, um, which I was so happy to see that you were back in that role. Um, but I would love it if you could speak to that. Well, you know, as you, as we dis- as we discussed, I-, I do, like, very extensive research for everything that I'm doing. Um, I was actually out shooting in South Dakota, uh, Lakota woman, you know, there with all, you know, portraying American Indian movement and, you know, the boarding schools and, and what that did to our people and, you know, Wounded Knee and, 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 uh, you know, Mary had a baby in the middle of that 70 day siege um, and with, with bullets whizzing through and tanks and yeah. and um, so it, it was very powerful to be there and I found out I got the role so they sent me the script and and I read it and I went to Tantu Cardinal and I said I was like I, 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 I just I'm not sure what to do about this and she said Irene I know you you will you know, you will fight the battles that need to be fought. You're going to lose a lot of them, maybe even most, but at least the battle will have been fought. Mm. And so she gave me the courage and the strength. But you know what? They, but they, they were very, I mean, we, we worked and talked a, a long time about how she was a child. And I even had developed another voice for her, mm. you know, to, to kind of give her the, that time to grow up yeah. you know like why couldn't they start with with uh with you know that as they you know we were talking about storylines and, and we the storylines the most extensive storyline changes that have gone through as far as it goes what i can only what i can say because pocahontas's true life she was kidnapped she was raped she was a slave she was a pawn but she also was the most beloved daughter of a chief of who was the first confederacy on, probably on this continent that went all the way along the eastern seaboard down to Florida, all the way up to Nova Scotia. And, um, you know, so he was a leader and she, as the favorite daughter, was in his in, in their way and the way it was interpreted as well when she went over to England, a princess. Um, but... Uh, she endured a lot, and I think she was murdered, actually. Um, so, you know, I, I knew all these things. What was important at that time as a child, you know, to them and to me, as a child who grew up being chased every day after school by, you know, the oil company kids from down south from Texas in our neighborhood with their baseball bats and having to, you know, pull my little sister along, being called Pocahontas, you know, uh, they knew that. They understood that that was, um, you know, part of my, you know, part of my experience of this. So here we are again. Cut to. <sighs> he kept calling her Pocahontas over, and I work at the you know, I work with the United Nations um, for an NGO for the American Indian Enterprise and Business Council, working toward creating jobs, economic development, housing, um, energy solutions, things like that. Um, so we went. Our first or second time going to the UN was that when Secretary Ban Ki Moon put together the you know the World Indigenous Forum together with the Global Assembly, which meant that world leaders like Obama was there, you know, that people had to come 
and listen to the indigenous people. He put us at the forefront of the climate march because we're the ones who have been watching this for so long. I mean, I've been talking about this since the 80s and publicly, but for the majority of my public life, people don't. You know, because I'm also special consuls for the city of peace, cities of peace, and I'm all, I'm trying to figure out how to, we can do two things: heal this historical trauma, and and build bridges to one another, create less fear, create less hate. You know, love always wins, always. And uh, you know, how how can we how can we how can we heal all this? So. Um, you know, that being said, you, you know, as as time has passed, first off, uh, it was protested at the beginning. And and, and, I, and as far as like having to, and Disney was so scared, you know, about what I was going to do. I mean, but because it was 110,000 people in Central Park, I went all around the world, you know, where they had tent after tent of the international press there. And, and it was the same year I was Gold, Golden Globe for Lakota women, I mean, so, you know, it's such a dichotomy, really, of things that, there's nothing that could have prepared a person for that, but, you know, and I thought at that point, I'm just a girl from Alaska, like, you know, well, first off, not anyone can speak for all indigenous people. There are 400 million indigenous people worldwide, um, but we do have that cultural perspective. Um, the, the, our, we've, you know, this is this has been all paved over, but you know, we we've kept our feet in the grass. You know, we we know we know our mother earth. Um, we we have drums, we have songs. Uh, uh, they're not the same songs, they're not the same drums, but we have those cultural similarities we have respect for our elders we have we have respect for uh all the all the creatures you know we have um our, our own individual languages that relate to the stars and to our seasons and um but the most important similarity between all of our cultures is that uh how much revere we revere our coming generations and uh, I think for me, that's the most important thing. And, and what out of this, what happened was there was a whole generation of people who um, even just seeing me on camera and like on, a, you know, entertainment tonight or that, you know, then could say, well, there's something that, you know, at least somebody tried to do something for a, for young people that represented. Now we've got Molly of Denali on PBS. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we've come so far. We've come such a long way. So, yeah. Totally. yeah. I, you know, for um, for me, you know, it's really easy, and I've, I've found this to be true for a lot of things, uh, Dances with Wolves, and even Russell Means, the pictures that um, Andy Warhol took of Russell Means where he's wearing uh, a choker and he's got a ribbon shirt on and he's got feathers in his hair, and that it's really easy for us to look at things through our 2019 eyes and be like, well, he's dressed like a stereotype. Well, Pocahontas wasn't this Amazonian woman. She was a child. All these things happen. It becomes really easy to judge those things. But the language of that time and place deserves the context that, you know, for, for, uh, for the Andy Warhol picture, for Russell Means in that photograph. Um, Russell Means said that Pocahontas at the time said that Pocahontas was the greatest film about film, film about Native Americans in history that I actually 
I think he said it on camera with me. I, I would love to find that footage because I feel like my my jaw dropped because I didn't believe that at the time. I might have to I might have to look for that footage. <laughs> but you know, like when when you look at that picture and you you can stay, stay stereotyped, um, but the context of the time is that those AIM guys were coming out out of boarding schools, out of the military, for the first time wearing their identity. And at that time, uh, eagle feathers were illegal. And so it was these these small acts of defiance. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Disney's Pocahontas was significant when it came out, um, from my eyes, uh, because it was the first focus. It was the first Disney focus. It was the first real focus that you could see that was approachable for, for children, particularly, um, that represented an indigenous woman, indigenous people that was casting indigenous people as a voices, and that was significant. And so even later on when, when I first had Sage, uh, when she was, I didn't have Sage, my wife had Sage. Um, <laughs> you participated. <laughs> 13 years ago, uh, you know, I kept... The, I kept Pocahontas from her because she was super into Disney princesses. I was like, I don't want to go. I don't want to, you know, I just don't want to go down that road. But, you know, she discovered it. And the moment she discovered it, her eyes lit up and she got so excited. She must have been two or three. And she was like, "It's she's so beautiful. And she took it and she hugged it. And I'm <laughs> sorry. It's, it's emotional because she took something that, I had internalized because of my own ideas and she saw it through not my eyes she saw it through her own eyes she defined that character for herself which was incredibly moving but also a lesson our children teach us that Sometimes we just need to back off and just let them find those things. And she gets older and she finds out the truth. She respects that because it's part of her childhood. But it's also such an incredibly powerful tool to get to that place of truth. And so, yeah, on the surface, it's really easy to be like, that's a problem. But how many young Native girls do not have representation of themselves in the Disney, you know, universe? Moana now. Yeah. Uh, Willie Cavallo. Yeah, yeah, I know. But at that time, there was no, those mm-hmm. things weren't there. But I know this is such a complex issue, too. You know, a favorite of mine now, and this is the thing that I love about uh, Indigenous people, is because, you know, as when I'm working with my production company and having to go to these meetings and them saying, you know, well, you know, it's about the bottom line. You're just not a demographic. There's not enough of you. And it's like, you know what? There are 400 million indigenous people worldwide. But then there are, you know, all the people who might be in those lives. And then you put people who just might have an interest in it. And then you just put it out because it is part of who we are as humanity. That these are the things that need to be put out. And so, you know, you got to look at it from that perspective that, you know, this was something, especially at the time where, you know, little girls around the world. And then teachers also said, well, that's not historically accurate. So I believe that any form of communication is good because, you know, then you got a lot of mad teachers who are like, okay, we're going to teach the right thing in our class, right? (laughs) But then you had a kind of the basic tenets of it, you know, about, about, you know, peace and, 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 and her relationship to, you know, the earth and her relationship to, you know, the, the animals and, and grandmother Willow, though she 
be a tree, the wisdom of, of elders, the wisdom of her father, um, and, and the concept of finding your own path. Also, she was the first princess to not, you know, wait for her prince to come and save her. She actually saves him. So there were a lot of great messages in it. Was it historically accurate? Could we, you know, have... I mean, then I, you know, went on to do New World, which also was very romanticized by Terrence Malick, but I think he also did some things that were, you know, uh, really took a different, you know, deeper look into any other production that I've seen. Um, But... uh, Yeah, we're moving along. Right now, as I said, you know, my mission and vision statement of healing through the power and art of storytelling. So I, you know, have Heartland, which is coming up, which is in the can and which is about Standing Rock. And then uh, The Bygone, uh, which is about the murdered and missing indigenous women. Uh, well, you know, and and actually proceeds of that are going to the National Women's Resource Center. Those are coming out. Um, so, you know, it's really like I, once you sort of put these things in your out to the universe and you say them out loud, our words are powerful. They are spells. You know, it is, you know, you can like I, some television show or some someone said it. You know, I thought it just stuck with me. Worrying is your fear's prayer. Wow. And so then, you know, that, you know, on the other end of that spectrum, so, you, you know, you, you have to stop that kind of thinking because you're just putting it, that anxiety into your body. And then, but, but then when you start thinking in those, in those positive ways, forward thinking, future thinking, like that, that's where we come to a space where, you know, where I think that you know, the path becomes well lit you know, you see it, you start coming, things come to you and you start looking for it and you start seeing those signs and you start, you know, believing in yourself and moving forward. Wow. Um, I can legitimately sit here and talk to you for hours. <laughs> I know, but there's like a whole car full of <laughs> no. people waiting for me. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I hope we get to talk again soon. Um, I, I, you know, I grew up in Park City, Utah, mm-hmm. so I went to the Sundance Film Festival oh, since yeah. I was little, and film is such an incredibly important thing to me. And uh, so I get excited to talk to folks that are in those industries and get to work with people like Terrence. I'm like, that's crazy. But uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me and, and for your words. Oh, thank you. Koyanach. And uh, we're back. <laughs> I first off, I want to say um, Irene was like really lovely, and I think she comes across as that in the interview. I mean, she was just incredibly lovely to talk to, um, which you know you sometimes see actors and actresses, and you really want them to be lovely people in real life. But they're not. Um, well, I mean, sometimes they're not, but, uh, Irene did not disappoint. Nope. She was a total sweetheart. Um, she was very impressed with you. We did a performance piece, um, for the Comic-Con and, um, it's a little bit different in terms of artistic expression than I think the, your average Comic-Con crowd. Um, but it was still important. And, um, she shared some stuff with me personally, uh, which I won't share here, but um, let me just say that she was, I mean, she kind of expressed that in the interview. She was moved by by what you did, um, that I 
got to be a part of. I mean, that was mostly you, and I get to kind of be there. It was cool. It's intense doing that. Like that, we've done it a couple times now. Mm-hmm. Uh, that time, I almost, I almost got emotional. I almost felt my feelings, and uh, yeah, and I, I say that jokingly. I'm really just trying to. Uh, hold my crap together, you know, <laughs> professionalism, if you will. So, um, anyways, uh, I hope that you enjoyed that. We are now going to get into the clarification segment of the program that is led by the lovely Sage Deal. Hello. <laughs> Do you, you know, if you're whispering to me, they can actually hear you. Oh, really? <laughs> Look, go ahead and start us off, Sage. Okay. We can start wherever you want to start. So, at the beginning, she talked about the Native American Community House. What is that? Um, there is, uh, I believe what she was referring to is an urban Indian center that is in uh, New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a community of Native people in New York City, and they kind of all work together and support each other. Now, uh, there is a possibility that I'm wrong about that uh, because, um, and I might, of course, I'm going to look this up after the fact, but uh, <laughs> the... Uh, um, there is a community in New York City of uh, Native people who are uh, creatives, actors, and actresses, and uh, and and so on and so forth. Um, there's an urban Indian center as well, and uh, in certain times, I think, you know, like most into urban Indian centers, I think that they uh, fluctuate in how many people are there and who's helping who, and if if it's a resource at all, or you know. Uh, Sometimes it's not. That's true in San Francisco. That's been true in L.A. Um, that's been true in some major cities. I know Chicago's got a good situation, too. So uh, I believe that is a reference to the uh, Urban Indian Center that's there. So she used some words um, that I think were in a different language. She said Chico Locola and Pajasapa and Koyana. Okay, so Pajasapa is in reference to the Black Hills. Um, hold on one second. And the other ones, um, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) This is not helpful at all. We should probably go over these before. (laughs) Our clarification segment is not very clarifying. Although I think when she said Koyana, it was something like, and greeting, like, bye. Yes, yeah. And, you know, among other Native people, like, so sometimes I'll do this and sometimes I won't. Um, but a lot of uh, Indigenous people will say things. All right, what's your next question? What are we looking at? Okay, so she said that they brought enough explosives, I think, to br- blow the noses off of Mount Rushmore. Yeah. Why specifically Mount Rushmore? Well, Mount Rushmore is, uh, you know, is sort of hold- beholden as this um, incredibly important American landmark, right? Because it's got these faces of, of what people will call, um, you know, the founding fathers. Nature faces. No, it's like... Uh, Abraham Lincoln and yeah, but it's like the faces in nature, which it seems really weird. But there, but it, but what happened was, I mean, if you have to go back farther in history, um, the Black Hills are an incredibly important and sacred space to Lakota people, and um, and so 
there were through treaties promises that were given to the Lakota people that they could retain those spaces. I mean, it is in in the only Western sense, which is which I don't think is completely correct. When the only Western sense of comparison um, is like a like a church, it's a sacred space. And so, what ended up happening, um, right? like during and sort of after the Plains Indian Wars is settlers went into the Black Hills and they found gold and then people like flocked to the Black Hills to just mine the hell out of it. And so that was against treaties, uh, the treaties that were set and um, the federal government did nothing to stop them. In fact, uh, the um, Seventh Cavalry, uh, like the, the uh, what's his name? General George Armstrong Custer. So the Seventh Cavalry's leader, uh, which is a notorious um, uh, cavalry, of course, uh, he actually went and mined those spaces, and so um, and so it was just a total disregard of the Black Hills, and so. After the Plains Indian Wars, after everything happened, uh, they started carving these faces into the Black Hills. Um, and I and there's a little more nuanced sort of explanation to what that is. But by all intents and purposes, those faces, as sort of a huge slap to the face of this Indian nation, um, that the white forefathers of this country who were a part of the dealings of the relationship of the federal government with the um, indigenous people of North America, um, particularly or specifically the United States, um, have their faces carved into it. I mean, could you imagine taking like a sacred uh, temple or church or synagogue or something like that and just like defacing it in such a way and not even defacing defacing it for your own needs for your own desires complete yeah completely like uh defacing these things um in such a way that is just a massive slap in the face so for those that are not familiar there are certain periods in time and there are certain places in the United States where natives will make jokes. There was a, a photograph that was famously spread around uh, the internet. It was a bunch of natives standing in front of the uh, of Mount Rushmore and they're flipping it off. Like they're flipping off the faces. And they're just brown enough that a bunch of folks that uh, are um, sort of leaning to the right, if I can say it in a nice way, uh, politically, um, we're like, look at these Mexicans. They come here and they don't appreciate it and everything. But they're actually native people. And uh, I mean, only only in a, a country this twisted can you um, <clears throat> take the brown people who are indigenous to this land and believe that they're foreign. Um, but that's sort of just the irony of it. But there's but there is a there is a relationship that indigenous people have with Mount Rushmore that's based on the relationship the federal government has had uh, with the Lakota people and in treating the Black Hills, where Mount Rushmore is, with um, with respect to the treaties that were made, and uh, that those Black Hills are, uh, they belong to those people, um, if I can say they belong to those people, because I don't think Native people really feel like that, that we own anything, but there is an inherent right to those things, a cultural right to those things. Does that answer your question? There's a Geico commercial at Mount Rushmore. Okay. Okay. That's as far, that's all you're doing? You're just going to, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you mentioned the Plains Indian Wars. 
Yeah. Um, well, so the Plains Indian Wars was happening, uh, gosh, and I'd have to look up the dates, but I'm just going to keep it very general. The Plains Indian Wars were essentially when the United States Cavalry were fighting with Native nations. This is uh, right um, probably during or at least at the end of like the Civil War all the way into the actual like great expansion of the West manifest destiny. And so as they were expanding the West, they were sending military out and military was having skirmishes with Indian people to try to, uh, quench them, to try to, um, keep them at bay for this sort of westward expansion. Um, the Plains Indian Wars are important because, uh, this was sort of the pinnacle of American understanding of indigenous, uh, existence. So that is, um, the Lakota who have been called the Sioux in the past. That's not their name. Uh, Sioux is a French word that means uh, snake in the grass. Um, and I think it was given to them. If I remember right, I think it was given to them by the Ojibwe. Don't quote me on that. I'm pretty sure it was by a, an opposing uh, indigenous community. Mm-hmm. And um, But anyway, because there's this complicated relationship with the French and with the English and anyways. So, um, but this was where Sitting Bull came from. This is where people began to understand uh, people like Crazy Horse. Um, You could easily pull the Apache into this as well with the, uh, with Geronimo. Um, There's a number of skirmishes with the Cheyenne, with the Arapaho. I mean, so there's all these different things that took place um, in engaging Indian nations in militaristic, uh, skirmishes and that's the Plains Indian Wars but th- what's interesting about the Plains Indian Wars is that it was happening at a time where there was a greater sense of media and understanding by the United States and so your average citizen was reading about this in the newspapers and dime novels and things like that and those are the things that created the understanding of indigenous existence as we know it today within popular culture yeah. Um, so what's a BIA official? Uh, BIA stands for Bureau of Indian Affairs. The Bureau of Indian Affairs is part of the Department of the Interior, uh, which is a branch of government that actually oversees land and resources. For some reason, Indians are under the branch of government that also controls land and resources. So I think that I take that as uh, the way that... The federal government sees indigenous people that we are a resource. Um, the Bureau of Indian Affairs used to be part of the War Department hmm. at one point. But the Bureau of Indian Affairs um, is essentially the uh, federal, how is the best way to put this? Like a, like a federal entity that engages tribes that are federally recognized uh, by the government of the United States, uh, of which there are 573 of them, I believe is the number. Um, there are hundreds more that are not recognized by the federal government, but are oftentimes recognized by the states that they live in. Um, and, and I'm just, I say this because people don't really understand how many different indigenous communities there are and what that engagement looks like. Um, oftentimes the Bureau of Indian Affairs has offices, has like points of contact for tribes to touch base with and to like communicate with. Um, the Bureau of Indian Affairs does a number of different things from providing uh, police forces. Uh, there's a BIA uh, police 
um, for tribes that don't have enough resources to have their own police department. Um, and they will also kind of work under um, a lot of the federal laws and things that have to be taken care of. There's also uh, federal trust that BIA helps regulate. So, for example, our tribe, the Pyramid Lake uh, Paiute tribe in Nevada, um, has some water rights things. And so there's some money that was set aside by selling, uh, different, different, uh, water sources and things, um, like years and years and years ago, that money sits in a trust that's regulated by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So if we want that, we have to go to them and say, Hey, you know, we want this. And, and so, uh, they also work as a ward, um, or as sort of a trust officer, uh, for, for different things like that too. It's a really strange, uh, relationship. And honestly, every tribe has a different relationship, um, based on their resources and infrastructure. So what is Into the West? Into the West is a series that came out in, I believe the, I want to say the late nineties. It might be, it might be earlier than that. We got to go over these questions beforehand. Uh, okay. Into hold on a second. All right. Uh, Into the West was early 2000, 2005. So it's a mini series that was produced by um, Steven Spielberg, and Steven Spielberg did E.T. and Jaws and I don't know, some other one. He's a famous director. <laughs> so what's the Wounded Knee Massacre? Gosh, these are some really uh, deep historical. Uh, but I guess she she did talk about all these. Um, so the Wounded Knee Massacre was. Um, oh gosh, it was it was a massacre that happened uh, with the uh, Lakota people, um, and they were doing a ceremonial dance called the Indian Ghost Dance. And this might be worth getting into in another podcast, like from a historical story point of view. Um, but they were doing a ghost dance and, um, the, uh, military that was, uh, standing guard over them, um, open fired. They were, they were unarmed. Um, they were like men, women, and children, and they just killed it. And for, for a long time, they called it, um, the wounded knee, uh, I think battle, it wasn't a battle. You need weapons on both sides to have a They gave Medal of Honor, which is the highest uh, medal that you can receive as a military person in the United States. They gave Medal of Honors to all of the soldiers. What? And um, even like a fight. But it was not a battle. It was a massacre. And they... Um, Open fired and just massacred a bunch of people. And um, likewise, because uh, that happened towards the end of the Plains Indian Wars, um, and that ceremonial practice they were doing had a lot to do with um, medicine and trying to um, trying to find hope in a hopeless situation because uh, reservations were already happening at that point. And reservations are not these like plots of land that were benevolently given to Indian people during that time. Um, during that time, reservations were plots of land that they were keeping Native people on uh, under military armed guards. So they were more like a prisoner of war camp. Um, but likewise, the Sand Creek Massacre, which happened before that, um, was also one of, the, one of the biggest and most horrific ones. And that happened here in Colorado 
in the 1800s uh, where they, um, there was, uh, and we can get into this one too. In fact, we are going to get into this one because I was down there uh, earlier this summer. And um, they opened fired again on uh, everybody uh, and just killed a, a number of Arapaho and Cheyenne people uh, who were unarmed and who were posing no threat. In fact, they were told to go there and to, to wait and to, to just be there and that they would be protected. And the United States government uh, um, soldiers from their military went down and, uh, and murdered them, but also um, mutilated a lot of the bodies and things. We can get into that. That will be another podcast because I was down there and it is heavy. Open firing is the opposite of protection. You're not wrong. <laughs> so, uh, what's Molly of Denali? This is a new, a new TV show on PBS. Ooh, fancy. Yeah, and the lead character is uh, Molly and she's, uh, she's native. Yeah, and, uh, Denali is in Alaska, so okay. it's an Alaskan native. Who is Andy Warhol and Russell Meeks? So Andy Warhol, of course, is a famous artist um, from the 80s, uh, 70s and 80s. Um, he did the soup cans, the Campbell's soup cans. He was a famous, uh, what they call, pop artist. And um, Russell Means... Uh, was probably one of the most important faces in the American Indian movement in the late 60s and into the 70s, uh, along with a number of other people, John Trudell, uh, Dennis Banks. Um, and we can talk more about them, too. In fact, uh, I might actually see if we can get uh, one of his sons on here. We could do an interview with one of them because they're both a couple of cool guys. That'd be cool. Uh, but Andy Warhol did a, a painting uh, and a series of prints on um, Russell Means. And we could talk about that, too, because I just wrote a whole piece about it, uh, which is going to be in a book that I believe releases this month. Ooh, yeah. So is that it? Yep. Is that all you got? That's all I got. What did you think? I, I want to know what you thought of of this interview, uh, especially because I, I mentioned you. Um, it was really good, and it had a lot of interesting factors yeah yeah and i liked listening to it um, it wasn't boring i think that there's uh you know and we, we kind of forget these sometimes that um there's oftentimes a complicated story with things i mean when pocahontas first came out um it was celebrated and uh, the celebration is in, was incredibly important and progressive in terms of representation. And over the years, of course, that's changed. And I think that uh, Irene illustrated that very well. Um, but I also talk, and I, and I actually get a little emotional thinking about it, um, where I talk about you and sort of your experience in realizing that there's this, this princess that is native and that you identified with that and that you loved it. Uh, your Hootsie, your grandma, um, bought you a stuffed version of her. Doesn't Holland have that now? Actually, I think it's on display in a museum right now. Oh, yeah. You also took my Lego man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but these things are things that uh, have... have like they're incredibly complicated. It's really easy for us to look at these things and to dismiss them as being inappropriate, um, which it's okay if they're inappropriate. Like we, we can define those things, but if we look at the entire picture, it changes things very quickly. So did you have any other thoughts on that? All right. All right. 
Well, uh, I guess that's it. Um, thank you for listening to uh, Big Chief Sugar. Uh, you can find us at uh, bigchiefsugar.us. Uh, you can email us at bigchiefsugarpodcast uh, at gmail.com. Um, I, I have an Instagram account that I think is Big Chief Sugar uh, Podcast, um, but I haven't been very active, so I'll work on that. Um, we love your feedback. We love it when you leave reviews, uh, and maybe you know, maybe we'll start reading those reviews on the air on this free radio. Uh, and um, we got a couple of really cool things coming up, uh, a couple of cool interviews coming up, and uh, uh, a recap of this last weekend, which was super cool. Uh, but until then, be safe. Bye bye.